First Commandments deals with actual or imagined supernatural powers. The scope of this commandment is that it governs our relationship with the supernatural realm. It deals with our religious allegiances. Now, spoken in a negative sense, this commandment tells us, do not worship any imagined or real supernatural power other than the triune God. And do not give ultimate love, trust, reverence, or thanks to anyone other than God. Spoken in a positive sense, the commandment tells us to worship the triune God and God alone and give him your ultimate love, trust, reverence, and thanks. Now, in a very real sense, the first commandment is the most vital of all of the other commandments. Jesus says in the New Testament that this is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God, to have no other gods before him, to give God your ultimate love, trust, allegiance, reverence, and worship. We are to worship the one God, body and soul, with everything that we have. We cannot be divided in our loyalty. Cannot be divided in our loyalty. And so in a sense, this commandment is a springboard to keeping all of the rest of God's commandments. Now, I understand you may think that the issue of worshiping other gods or idolatry or atheism is, is totally irrelevant to us. I mean, you say, I, I'm, not, I'm not an idolater and I'm not worshiping other gods. I'm not a polytheist and I'm not an atheist. So, so this commandment really doesn't have all that much to say to me. But let me assure you that this matter, this issue, this commandment is always relevant for us because idolatry is the greatest challenge to true faith in every age, in every age of history. Idolatry is the greatest obstacle to living a life that is pleasing to God. Now, we live in an age where you know, atheism is the most well-known form or manifestation of, of unbelief. But, but we all know that atheism in itself is a faith, a belief, a system of understanding how the world works. But, you know, that said, there has always been very, very few atheists in the world. And even today, statistics tell us that atheists are a tiny minority in our greater society. Idol worshipers, on the other hand, are and always have been numerous. Now, I should take an opportunity here before we go any further to make a little bit of a distinction about idolatry as I'm going to talk about it tonight and idolatry as I am going to talk about next week. Because the first and second commandment both deal with idolatry. 
But the scope of the first commandment deals with our relationship or allegiances with the supernatural realm. And the scope of the second commandment has more to do with our worship or how we worship the one true God. That said, when I talk about idolatry with regard to the first commandment, I am referring to those things real or imagined that we put in the place of God as objects of our ultimate love and trust and desire and etc. Next Sunday evening, when I talk about idolatry in reference to the second commandment, I will be referring to unauthorized, forbidden representations of the one true God, which are misrepresentations of God's person and nature and character. For example, you remember the golden calf. It happens um, a little bit farther on in the book of Exodus. How many of you remember the golden calf incident? Now, was Aaron and the people of Israel, were they trying to create for themselves a brand new God? No, they weren't. They were trying to make an image that would help them to worship the God who brought them out of Egypt. But, you know, God looks at that golden calf and says, no, 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 that's not me. That's wrong, okay? You know, it's not surprising because Israel always struggled with idolatry. If you look at Old Testament history, you see that that the Jews struggled from day one with this issue. Abraham, the the father of Israel, the father of the Hebrew people, the father of faith was born in an idolatrous nation, in an idolatrous culture, even in an idolatrous family. I mean, Abraham's father was an idolater and likely Abraham was too before God revealed himself to him and called him to pick up and move to a different land. We know for certain that Abraham's descendants, his immediate descendants, continued to struggle with it. When we get to Genesis 31 in the story of of Jacob, we see that when Jacob's family was fleeing from his uncle Laban, Rachel, his wife, had stolen her father's household gods. What's that about? You guys remember that story, right? Moses struggled with Israel's allegiance to the God of Egypt even before God brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them these commandments. Fast forward to the end of Joshua's ministry. In Joshua 24, he gives this this stirring speech to God's people and he challenged them. Choose this day whom you will serve. And do you remember what the people responded? They said, we will serve the Lord. Do you remember what Joshua said? He said, no, you won't, and no, you haven't. You have served gods of your own making. You have served the gods of the nations around you. You are doing it right now. And the words that you have just spoken to me are going to be a testimony against you. Even by the end of Israel's run as a nation, the prophets are still talking about and hammering home the issue of idolatry. Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the later prophets are talking about this. And that said, I just want to make a point here. Idolatry goes against everything that Israel was saved for. 
Israel was liberated, it was rescued, it was saved and redeemed to worship the one true God of the universe and the one true God of the universe alone. And it is the same for us today. And I'll tell you, we too struggle with idolatry, even though we were saved to worship as well through the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We exist as believers, as the Westminster Catechism tells us, to believe in God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. But we struggle with idolatry. We struggle with divided loyalties. In a sense, every time we sin and disobey God, we are communicating that there is something more important to us than God. That is why I mentioned the first commandment as kind of a, a springboard commandment because we break the first commandment when we break any of the other commandments. That is just one reason why this first great word from God in the Ten Commandments is so relevant for us today. You shall have no other gods before me. We are to love and serve and worship no other God but God. In other words, believers are called to live in complete loyalty to and love of the one true God and him alone. That is what we have been created, redeemed, and called to do. Now, just to be clear, in case there is any misunderstandings or misconceptions, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he does not mean that you merely need to make sure that he is first on your pecking order. He's not making sure that he's number one and that you can have 13 other gods if you want to as long as God Almighty is most important. He is emphatically stating that he alone is God. There are no others. There are counterfeits, but there is no other God. And so it's not a matter of having God at the top of your list. It's that God is the list. He has no rival. And he loves us too much for, for us to deceive ourselves about that. He's not going to let that happen. He makes it crystal clear in Scripture. God, because he is God, will not share his throne. He is sovereign Lord over all of creation. He is sovereign Lord in, over our individual and also our corporate lives. It says in the Ten Commandments that he is a jealous God. Usually we think of jealousy in a negative way, but, but actually the true definition of jealousy, you can't be jealous of something that does not belong to you. And so when the Ten Commandments say that he is a jealous God, it is actually a virtue that the commandments are lifting up. He is jealous, he is protective and territorial and uncompromising about what belongs to him, which is what? Which is everything. You will have no other gods before me means that he alone must be the object of our devotion. And so the first commandment calls us to single-minded, single-hearted, undivided loyalty, service, love, 
devotion and worship of God. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 94, asks, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? And it answers that I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation, sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust him alone, look to him for every good thing, humbly and patiently, love him, fear him, and honor him with all my heart. And based on that understanding... I hope that you are already beginning to see the challenge here. We don't have time to adequately illustrate just how challenged we are in breaking the first commandment, but, but let me just mention a few things that are working against us. As I mentioned before, the struggle of believers today and throughout history is one of divided loyalties. And there is so much in our society, so much in our culture, so much in our world that presses against undivided loyalty. Everything else out there seems to encourage us to have divided loyalties. Let me give you an example. We want to be Christians, but at the same time, we want to walk in comfort and agreement with the unbelieving culture around us. We want to simultaneously say we are on the Lord's side, but also that we're on the world's side. So let's dig a little deeper into why this is such a challenge and such a problem. We all live and work and raise kids in a world that is committed to at least two principles, relativism and pluralism. Relativism says that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Pluralism says that the only way that you can live peacefully in society where people have different beliefs is to adopt relativism as your starting point. In other words, relativism says there's no truth. Pluralism says the way to to live together and get along with people is to acknowledge that there is no truth. Those who have adopted this philosophy of relativism and pluralism look at the true church, and of course, they make the accusation that the church is guilty of breaking the one sin left in society, which is claiming that there is absolute truth and that sin matters, and that there is one God who demands our lives in their entirety. Our children are bombarded from every side in a culture, in a culture that has adopted that mindset, and it pulls them away from obedience to the one true God. Now, you're gonna see this logically, that a philosophy of relativism and pluralism depends on something of an absolute tolerance. So it's interesting that um, relativism and pluralism are so anti-absolutes, yet the absolute that those two um, ideologies depend on is, is absolute tolerance. Tolerance. What's right for me is what's right for me. What's right for you is what's right for you. So young people who are taught in Bible-believing churches and, and Christian schools that the one true God is their God, that's, that's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine in culture. But the moment that they make an exclusive claim regarding their faith, that's wrong. 
And I've talked to college students from our congregation that have gone to secular campuses in particular that when they make an absolute claim, they are blackballed in their classes by their professors. The moment they make an exclusive claim regarding their faith, that is seen as wrong, which forces them into a position that says, the one true God is my God, but who am I to say that the one true God is the God of anyone else? Now that sounds kind of nice, it sounds humble, it sounds tolerant, but this too actually pulls them away from fidelity to the one true God, and it pulls them away from obedience to the first commandment. So if you're not talking to your children and your grandchildren about this challenge, you are not talking to them about Christianity's greatest challenge today. The churches and denominations we've seen are dropping like dominoes on this issue. Our culture puts so much pressure on us to say, okay, We'll worship God in our way. You worship God in your way or don't worship God at all and we'll all get along. The Christian response should be, no, no, no. You worship God in our way. We are going to worship God in his way. It's not our way. It's his way. In other words, we are, as Christians, called to have some toleration. We are to tolerate those who disagree with us because we respect the image of God in them, because we recognize total depravity and its debilitating effects, because we agree that we are not called to convert people at the point of a sword. So yes, we tolerate those who disagree with us, but we do not say that their faith is just as valid as ours. We do not say that that their truth is just as valid as our truth. We do not say that we all worship the same God, that there are many roads that lead to heaven, that Jesus Christ is just one way among many to be saved. We say, I believe that what I believe is absolute truth for me and for you, whether you recognize it or not because my truth comes directly from the one true God through his word. And therefore, I believe that you are wrong, but I still love you, because that is what the God of truth has commanded me to do. There's a world of difference between that and what culture pressures us to do. So then, relativism and pluralism challenge us in regard to the first commandment. Liberalism today is also a challenge to our obedience to this commandment. And liberalism, as I refer to it here, because there's many different facets and understandings of liberalism, liberalism basically allows and encourages our human judgment to stand over and above the word of God. Liberalism claims that our human uh, rationality and judgment and sense of propriety sometimes needs to correct misinformation and misconceptions contained in Scripture. 
It views the Bible as an outmoded book written by people of an ancient culture who were trying to to describe what God was like in their own fallible way. And therefore, liberalism argues that it is our job and that we can and should correct it. Now, the danger in this, I hope you see, is and always has been that God will inevitably, when we take that path, be remade in our own image. One commentator wrote something somewhat clever. Um, He said, God created man in his own image, and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. This generation works hard at that, to make God or remake God in its own image to scale him down, to make him more accessible, to make him more likable, to make him less intrusive. And that's not just a problem that's relegated to the ivory towers of academia either. This is a problem that you see in life day after day. People ready and willing to redefine God in order to justify their lives and their desires and their behaviors. This too compromises our loyalty to God and our obedience to the first commandment. See, and this is a great blessing when you think about it. This is a gift of grace. God defines himself. God reveals himself. We don't define God. And therefore, we can trust and be confident that since God is defining himself, we can put our ultimate trust and faith in him. And so we, who are committed to our faith, we who are committed to our faith, worship God as he defines and reveals himself in his word, not as we would like him to be in a given circumstance. God says, I have no rival, I am God, I am the only God, I am the only source of satisfaction, I am the only source of security, I am the only source of affirmation. Those things are to be found in me. You do not go anywhere else looking for those things because that is a dead-end path. Matthew Henry writes, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that, whatever it is, is in effect an idol. And so I want you to think about that for a moment as we close up. What threatens to be an idol in your life? Is it your marriage or your family, your happiness or your career or your friendships? Is it success or pleasure? Now anything, even good things, can become an idol if it is ultimately loved, ultimately desired, and ultimately thought of the most. But we are believers. And believers are called to complete loyalty to and love of the one true God. And brothers and sisters, he is worthy of our praise, our worship, our very lives. 
Jesus Christ proved it on the cross and through his resurrection and in his ascension. And he will make that clear to everyone when he comes again. Close with Romans 12, verse one and two. Paul writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. Let's pray.